2017. Imagine your typical night out at a restaurant. There are 15 tables occupied, some 35, 40 people eating. At each of the tables, there are any number of cell phones on the tables face up. At any given time during the meal, a patron reaches over, clicks a button or two, checks the phone, turns the phone off. Maybe 10% of the times there's a text message. Very rarely is one of those text messages urgent. Outside on the road, driving away, a husband and wife get into a car together. The wife, immediately sitting down, checks her phone. The husband, when it's his wife's turn to drive, pulls up a video, a sports clip, watches it, puts the phone away. He's not particularly interested in the clip or the score or the outcome. He only wishes to see something. Preferably not his wife, preferably not the reality before him. He has lost his ability to be sincere. On the sidewalk, there is a man walking to his girlfriend's place. He's slowing down. Along the way, he pulls up a YouTube video of some angsty 90s indie rock song. He doesn't particularly like the song. He's heard it once, maybe twice. He hums a few of the lyrics. But it's entertaining. It saps his brain. It takes away the anxiety he feels at having to face his girlfriend. The girlfriend who's dated for two months, but has not really got to know her because when they hang out, they turn the TV on. They make a selection from 9,000 videos on Netflix, or a game, or a TV show, a reality show, something. Doesn't matter. This is 2017. In 1996, David Foster Wallace released Infinite Jest, a prophetic vision of the world we live in today. He was not the first to release such a vision, but is his enduring words that we will discuss for the next hour or so here on... Here comes everybody. I'm Ian Johnson, guest hosting today alongside Dominic D'Angelo and Jeff Schneekloth. Yeah. This is NPR. (laughs) (laughs) That was good. Yeah. This is my first time on a podcast. No, it's not. No? I've done podcasts before. What was the other one? But they're all basketball stuff. Yeah? Yeah. All basketball. Cool. Hey, there's nothing wrong with that. And just uh, for all you listeners know, I'm a little bit of a control freak here. At the helm. <laughs> so if I'm cutting in, taking away your favorite voices of the week, no sweat. They'll be back next week. That's fine, yeah. <laughs> hey. We'll, we'll, we'll put this on sale, right? This will be one of the uh, ones that's on sale. We'll, we'll have to push it. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's good. we got an expert here. No, we, we're A-okay with that. I, uh, I, like I told you guys before, like, before we recorded, I don't know anything about David Foster Wallace. Like, really nothing. So except his name. I heard of his name before. But that's it. So, yeah. I'm A-okay with you doing it. Let's get some uh, let's get some basic facts out of the way. Yeah. David Foster Wallace, originally known as David Wallace, was sitting with his agent on the eve of one of his first publications. There was already a, wi- a writer named David Wallace, and the agent said, "Hey, what can we change your name to?" David agent asked David, "What's your middle name?" He said, "Foster," and that's where he got the name. First book was Broom of the System, not very good, kind of clunky and congested, but. Was- like his college thesis, right? Something like that. But good enough to get him a look for his second book. His second novel was, of course, Infinite Jest, which we are discussing today. Now, is there any other like kind of background you want to give about him? Like where he's from? What Does that have any pertinence? I think he's a pretty normal American guy. He's from Illinois. Well, Grew up in the Midwest. 
the key thing about him that we'll get to is he was a great tennis player. He was a competitive tennis player. He's Which he wasn't him. really that good. Like, okay. as, as a, he was, I think that's hyped up a little bit. He was good, but was he all that great? Yeah. Like, in the, in the scheme of the athletic world, to, to a non-athletic outsider, an average citizen, I think he might have been pretty good, but within the realm of athletics, he, I can't see him being all that... Like he wasn't like world ranked or anything like that. Was, I mean, he was ranked regionally. Is that is that good? That's, that's average. Good. That's, I don't yeah, know. that's pretty good. That's I don't know. Impressive. I'm hating on him. Yeah, <laughs> hating on him already. Hating on his athleticism. Hating on his athleticism. Into his not only infinite jest, but his writing and possibly his discipline with his writing. Mm-hmm. First thing I mean we could say about infinite jest: how many pages? A thousand some pages, and dense as hell. I mean, it is packed. Same time, we could take a lot of athletes, have them try to write a book, and they wouldn't get past page one. True, yeah. So I think the Larry Bird, uh, Larry Bird's book is not on uh, <laughs> Those guys don't even write. William How Polk many athletes write their yeah. own books? That's a. It's very true. It's very few. One Andre Agassi, maybe, but yeah, he wrote he, that with probably a, the, with a the lot ghost of writer, yeah. yeah, with the yeah. ghostwriter and stuff. Shaquille O'Neal, of course, has his classics. Uh, his classic right? plays, uh, remembrance of things past, uh, <laughs> when he wrote about eating the. Did Madeline. he write Ulysses? Uh, yes, he did. Yeah, 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 he did. He wrote an updated version, a better Shaquille's version of yeah, Ulysses. Yeah, no, I love that wonderful passage in Shaquille's biography when he wrote about the Madeline. He ate the little French biscuit and reminded him of growing up on the uh... in New Jersey. <laughs> is he from Jersey or is he from New Jersey? Is he? He's oh, a Jersey okay. guy. Is he really? Yeah. No, he's not. Yeah. I didn't know that. I hate to hear that. He's huh. a Jersey guy. Yep. Yeah, you don't like the seven footers. I just don't like Shaquille O'Neal. Oh, okay. <laughs> I cannot stand. I think Shaquille O'Neal ruined basketball in a lot of ways. Yeah, for me, he did. The he important, so the important thing is that is the average. He's kind of he might be kind of a dick, but the important thing to remember is that the average basketball fan likes Shaquille O'Neal. Yeah, and that's that's what matters. But in the eighties and nineties, you had entertaining basketball, and then Shaquille O'Neal era, you had like a big, tall doofus. Was he was a, he was a genius when he was Ooh, when he was in shape. His footwork was phenomenal. Okay, he he couldn't shoot obviously from the outside, but he was yeah. he was an amazing player. He's yeah he was a, statistically he has exciting the, to watch. he has the greatest season of any NBA player ever statistically. Really? Yep. Wow. In terms of the amount he contributed to his team, so Will Chamberlain averaged more, but Shaquille O'Neal's two thousand two thousand one season. His player efficiency rating was the greatest of all time. That's crazy. That, when did, did they play the Nets in the finals? Uh, that was uh, that I think those 76ers. We'll have to double check this. We get, sta- we get our stack. Iverson, Iverson, Iverson. Yeah, Iverson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's when Tyron Lue or Iverson okay. stepped over Tyron Lue. Oh, is that why you have sour grapes against Shaq? Well, I just <laughs> think it's the equivalent of like when you go, when you watch like the fifties, and it's all white guys with like they look like businessmen, and they're like you know like. <laughs> yeah. Like politely passing to each other, and you go, "Why would I watch this?" <laughs> and I think Shaquille is also the other end of this. Just this is the other equivalent, treat. the other equivalent of that. Yeah, just yeah. A big, big doofus who he looks like if you're an eighth grader playing with second graders. Yes, he's mm-hmm. and not and so but now I'm not now his foot now his footwork. You have to appreciate his footwork in order to okay. appreciate Shaq. Yeah, yeah. But you look at a guy like the Sagan and Jop. Does anybody know who that is? Eighth it. pick by the Dallas Mavericks in two thousand. Two, uh-huh. two thousand one. I think it. I think it is bigger than Shaq. Weighs more than Shaq. But he did nothing. whatever. How many? How yeah. many big guys? Shaq size have his nimbleness. Exactly. There's like Kareem. Kareem was a little bit smaller than Shaq. He was seven yeah, seven one, but yeah. he didn't have the same build. Leaner, nimbleness. 
though, I'd say. Nimbleness, yeah. Will, Kareem. Yeah. I don't know. You know Kevin Durant. More. Kevin Durant is seven feet. Yeah. But Kevin Durant is also stringy mm-hmm. and grew up in a different different area. Yeah. Dirk Nowitzki, seven foot, more perhaps more nimble in his prime. Zach but you got to watch David Robinson. Maybe no, he was leaner too. David though. Robinson was more of a a bulk guy. Okay. He was more of a military guy more to Shaq's. Guy than Shaq? to, to Shaq's, I'm the fat guy on the block who's who's still <laughs> yeah, killing it, killing it at the around. the neighborhood Saturday night party. That's, yeah, that's yeah, who yeah. Shaq was. Yeah, no, he's Shaq's a rare one. That's for sure. But anyway, yeah. so we, we know that Shaq wrote Ulysses. We, yeah, know, yeah, we, right. know, we know that David Foster Wallace wrote Infinite Jest. That's what that's what we're talking yeah, about yeah. today. Yeah, I first read Infinite Jest when I was maybe 28 or 29, mm-hmm. 30, something like that, and. You know, like a lot of people, I think I was overwhelmed by the vocabulary. I assumed because he used all this vocabulary that was really good. I was overwhelmed by the density of, of the pages. I assumed it was really good. And by the time, you know, I got done reading it, I was looking at this book as sort of like a Bible. I told Shem, hey, I found my Bible. And there was a lot. There was a lot of inspiration to be mined in there. There was some phenomenal just passages that just absolutely blow my mind. It still blow my mind today. And then I reread this book about you know, a year ago, seven months ago, some, somewhere in there. And there's still so much to appreciate. But at the same time now, I can be more, more critical of it, which is why we're having this conversation today. Yeah, yeah. It has a rhythm, though. Once it gets going. Oh, it's like it, a drug, which is what he wanted to do. Yeah, be. there's so many things we can get into, uh, meta elements of it. But one thing is, it should not be like intimidating to new readers because it has a rhythm of almost like a long rambling like Facebook post that somebody's mm-hmm. just being totally honest with you. He gets into these different characters' heads. Mm-hmm. It's very conversational. It's not a lot of just the trees were you know like not a lot of the clouds look like sponges. You know, there's not a lot of that. Right. <laughs> yeah. But you know, it's uh, there. It, it's it shouldn't be intimidating. Because for a thousand pages, it's like reading a really smart mind in these different characters, being totally honest, being sort of insightful, but just trying to find insight, mm-hmm. you know, in their um, problems. Everybody's got problems in this book. What are their pro- What are their big problems? You know, what are their? Uh, well, we should say it's set in at sort of an alternate reality. Okay. Where first of all. Time. There's no more years. Years are now sponsored by advertisers. So it's the year of the uh, the Coca-Cola. adult depend under undergarment. Right, right. <laughs> and people take this. Hit. One of the things also is Infinite Jest is sort of about all these things that we accept and take seriously. So not only. So I just got the page right here. Go ahead. There's nine years that are subsidized time. Year one, you're the Whopper. Year two, the truck's medicated pad. The trial sized dove bar, year of the Purdue Wonder Chicken, all the way through the year of Glad. <laughs> Those are the subsidized times. So, anybody who's, who's heard an interview about the book knows this. Anybody knows heard the interview about the book knows that David Foster Wallace played tennis and that there's a lot of this book takes place in the tennis academy. There's basically a dual settings. There's a, this tennis academy where you find a lot of young teenagers angsty about their future, angsty about trying to make it big. And then we have this uh, halfway house, Ennett House, which is just down the hill from the Tennis Academy, full of 
addicts and recovering alcoholics that are new to new to recovery. Some just a week old, some just a day old, some have been there for nine months. And so we got these two very raw groups of people trying to find themselves, but both at the same time, you know, attempting to find that coherency within who they are to, to get lofty in our language here. Right, right. Now, um, would, do you know, like, as a launching pad, where, like, does this, from his first novel to this one, you say it's, this first novel is like, uh, just kind of like, okay. Now, going into this one, did, can you tell a distinct difference from what, you know, his writing style was from the first one to the second one? The writing's, he's so much in more in command of his voice. All yeah. the different voices that he used. He jumps from voice to voice in this book. He jumps from first person to third person. There's, I think there's a couple second, second person bits. There's, he occupies the mind of black people, white people, of Canadians, of, you know, men, women, women yeah. you know, yeah. across the board. At the same time, the noted New York Times book reviewer, whose name we are all forgetting, yeah. a woman who recently retired, commented, and I thought in a very astute observation of the book when it came out in 1996, this was very much a, a novel written by a man, and that uh, there's so much that men like to say where the woman wouldn't say. Mm-hmm. And so and one of the criticisms of the book, and the criticism that I share as well, is that it's just, the it's like very elegant diarrhea a lot of times. It just yeah. flows mm-hmm. out and... You know, like if diarrhea felt really good, like it's like you just want it to keep streaming out. But like eventually it starts to smell a little bit and you got to look down and say, dang, how much can I fit in this pot? That's a, that's a way to look at look Or at it's book. like any book is sort of talking to you, has a voice the way mm-hmm. it talks. This would be a book of somebody that just considers you a close friend and and is maybe has had a couple drinks or for whatever reason yeah. is willing to be really honest with you yeah in terms of like how and but to the point where maybe four hours later you go okay i just heard everything you know maybe you can chill you don't have to tell me everything yeah yeah but it has that but it also sort of has that uh, energy where that's maybe kind of that's interesting you know like some books think they're like a professor with glasses at the lectern and they have to describe everything. Yeah, right. Some books are, you know... Yeah. They uh, leave it up to interpretation. Or they're like, a, maybe they're a sailor. They're a, like a guy who just can't... Hey, let me tell you my story. Yeah. This is the book of, you know, like a, uh, a somebody in their 20s trying to figure out life, smart, uh, maybe some addiction problems... Um, Definitely some mental health history. Some mental health history, but who, but who's also intelligent and insightful enough to find some interesting places in this. Min- like some people, it, I, that's why I say it's a little bit like a Facebook post, but it's like somebody just writes like yarb, just nonsense about themselves, and it just they don't get anywhere. And you go, okay, you needed that. Nobody else. Needed yeah, it. yeah. Like but you- this is like where they actually in the rambling they get somewhere. Yeah, yeah. You know? They do get somewhere, and you, you do, there are some points made. None of those points are made directly, mm-hmm. which I think is is good. Yeah. I like that. It's uh, it's kind of like if uh, Terrence Malick, the film director, mm-hmm. like he presents these, these scenes to you, very elegant lighting, very elegant, you know, poetry. And then, but he doesn't really tell you exactly what you're meant to get. There's yeah. so much to be get. So you walk away. You walk away. Your first thought might be, "Dang, what? What did I just see?" And in this book, what I just read, 
but then you think about it, and you think about it, and all of a sudden, some sort of scene comes back to you. You remember the scene when Randy Lenz, who's a character in this book, you know, is, is in the bathroom and he's, he's hanging upside down from, from one of the, uh, doing headstands or, or push-ups against, uh, shoulder push-ups against the wall. And you think, what does that mean? Like, what, and then it all kind of, kind of fits together. Yeah. And isn't that interesting that in a book that's so talkative, so dense and so wordy, it's not in order to really get it. You have to look beyond that. It's yeah. not like mm-hmm. a like a short story that's like a, a sort of mysterious, simple sort of thing that's like you know two pages, and then you have to extract something. This tries to tell you everything, and in trying to tell you everything, but, and it you still have to figure out right what it's because getting, which is about communication. There's definitely some some vagueness to yeah, to yeah. his and it's very deliberate I think on David oh, Foster yeah, yeah. like, he wants you to have to think yeah. he wants you to have to get online and you know search for so what does this mean like where, where does this, where does this right, come out kind of delve into it more than what he's even presenting to you there are uh, a couple things I'll say about his success in this one I think the excess the density prevents it from being a masterpiece mm-hmm. like it, it, it's not it might be a masterpiece in the in the canon of of literature just in comparison to other ones, but like on its own, like this is not a masterpiece from David Foster Wallace. I think David Foster Wallace died without producing a masterpiece because of just this, there's too much in here. It's too, it's too dense, not in the writing, but in like the amount of stuff he tries to include. There's a lot of, he tries a lot of different things and, and he he usually has the talent to pull it off. But occasionally you just, you catch him trying to be too clever. Right, right. And then, exactly. And then then it kind of turns you away. Once, I got that a lot in the second reading. Even as some of the bits where I was like, appreciated the writing more and appreciated the characterization more. Yeah. Some of this other stuff was like, man, we could just cut this out. And that's going beyond like the 30 pages he has where he describes someone making a bed. Unless I'm missing something there too, and like it'll eventually become, you know, more real to me. Yeah. But you know, he cuts that out, and then if he also cuts out the excessive, some of the the scene setting, so like there's a subsidized time. Mm-hmm. There's this president who is a former crooner, as they call him. There's a, a what they call a concavity in in uh, what used to be New England, which is now a place where they deposit all kinds of trash. It gets very science fictiony and away from the I think distracts and detracts away from the characterization, which is in many ways so beautiful. Yeah, yeah. So David Foster Wallace, in my opinion, did not write a masterpiece in his lifetime. This could have been one, and maybe The Pale King could have been one as well, but he just didn't quite get there, which is part of what I think makes his death so so tragic. We're not, we don't have to get there yet, but just, yeah. you know, what would a masterpiece from him, would have, what might that have looked like? We won't know. Yeah. And the other thing to remember about this, too, is that when he originally turned in the manuscript to his editor, it was almost 1,800 pages long. Holy smokes. I'd or actually s- love to read the other stuff. So would I. Yeah. <laughs> so would I. What got cut in this? Yeah, I'd you still know, like, love to read it. Yeah. Like, uh, and so you think about that, like, this, uh, this is so thick and dense now, but uh, it was once, well, he's 40% bigger. How how long did it take you to read it the first time you read it? First time I read it, I read 25 pages a day. Yeah. For 40 days. Okay. And it was a rare, it was the first time I was just enthralled. Yeah, yeah. And it all. And there was parts I was skipping, just like, man, I can't, I just got to 25 pages. But at the same time, I was just, just realized there was this new level of reading that I had to, had to get to to yeah. understand this kind of density. And so 25 pages a day for 40 days. Second time, similar similar structure, but... Second time I did read the entire thing. Now, how much of the book do you think could have gotten cut out? 
like since it was. I think dense. you definitely got to keep keep the density. Yeah. But there's about. So if it's a th- eleven hundred pages, yeah, I think you could probably cut out three hundred, maybe. You yeah. might take some of the, uh, you know, the je ne sais quoi about it that, you know, that it's this massive book and that you sort of have to read, you know. But I think the point stands that it might not be a man. It reminds me what William Faulkner said about James Joyce trying to write Finnegan's Wake. He said he got electrocuted by his own talent. Mm-hmm. That just because Wallace was talented enough to do this doesn't mean he had to do it doesn't mean he had to do it yeah yeah yeah. Mm-hmm. I still think Wallace was he was what 29 20, 30 when he wrote this this book was 33 when it came out so maybe it was 31 mm-hmm. and I think of men especially particularly cerebral and talented men at 30 they want to you know display their talent in whatever way they can you think you yeah. can change the world by writing a book <laughs> yeah. yeah and he he, yeah. he definitely left his mark we're, yeah, mark. Yeah. we're here now 20 years later and you know, talking about him. Apparently, it's still relevant. Huh? Almost reverent, reverently. Yeah. But at the same time, it's almost. I feel almost like we're talking about a man's, you know, indulgent ejaculation. Yeah, that could be another title for the book. The indulgent <laughs> ejaculation. Yeah, indulgent ejaculation. Yeah. <laughs> so. In, All right. That? Well, do you want to start to uh, maybe just giving a basic rundown of how the book starts and how it like what it incorporates exactly so i think there's it's it'd be impossible here we need 10 podcasts to really get in depth to the plot yeah what we can do is give a basic summary okay a basic summary and the sum the summary i'm going to give is really an overarching theme as the amount of space it gets in the book is relatively shallow Mm -hmm. so the the theme is there's this entertainment what they call an entertainment infinite jest is the name of it it's a movie and it's so entertaining that anybody who watches it can do nothing else but want to watch it again and again. So say I were to put it on the screen, I watch it, I would hit, immediately hit rewind, impatiently waiting, and just play it again. I would not go to the bathroom, I would not eat, I would not sleep. So in that you way... You go to the bathroom on yourself. You go to the bathroom on yourself. You become huh. basically in con- a form of incontinence. And in that way, the entertainment is a lethal yeah. device. Your yeah. life is over. Your life is You're over. You're null and void. Wow. And there is R... A number of people looking for uh, this entertainment, including some Canadian terrorists who want to use it to get back at the United States for, you know, basically. Well, that's that's another realm, right there. It's a weapon. weapon. They see it's it a as weapon. a weapon. They see it as a weapon. It okay. is a weapon. They see it as a weapon. And th- this this is played out the idea of entertainment in a conversation between two characters. One is Don Steeply, who is part of uh, what is now the CIA. Uh huh. In uh, this new America, and the second is this guy named Remy Marath. Hopefully, I got that pronunciation right. So they meet on this step in the Arizonian desert, and they discuss. And this is David Foster Wallace, you know, his his two different selves having this conversation. This is meant to be the intellectual part of the book, as they discuss. And Steeply is dressed as a woman. Dressed as a woman. He's supposedly in character. For some, re- for some reason. But he's played for laughs because he's like a CIA guy yeah. who's ripping his pantyhose. And Remy is in a wheelchair. He's part of a group called the Wheelchair Assassins. Remy is possibly a double agent. Well, he is a double agent. We just don't want to give too many uh, gimmies here. Hopefully this is encouraging some of you guys to check out the book. And who were the Wheelchair Assassins were a group that there were uh, Canadian kids... Who, in order to prove themselves, they would wait at a running train, or ten guys would line up at a train. This is all invention of the book. Yeah, but yeah. That right? They they'd stay at each either side of a train, 
and the last person to jump across uh, was the winner. So most of the guys in the group ended up in a wheelchair. That's yeah. why they're known as the wheelchair assassins. Oh, okay. All right. They've grown up to become kind of like terrorists. Mm-hmm. And the, they're disappointed in the way that the U.S. is treating their country. Yeah. But in the book, now the U.S., Mexico, and Canada are all kind of merged into what they call the Organization of North American Nations. Onan is the acronym that's used throughout. So there's all these, there's all these different... Onan, which is uh, has meaning anyway. Onanistic, uh, you know. It's like all, masturbation. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> so it's, uh, I think, what language is that from? Latin. Latin. Right. So like Onan. So Onan means masturbation and it's, you know, there's all these little different meanings that you yeah, can get into. Yeah. But the the majority of the book takes place in the aforementioned halfway house. Yeah. The Ennett, Ennett House and the uh, Tennis Academy, which is the Enfield Tennis Academy. And in the Enfield Tennis Academy, there are the uh, Incandenza family. We find the remnants of them. Uh-huh. The head of the in Candenza family was James A. Candenza. He's the guy who made the entertainment. Okay. For specific reasons. That uh, what do you think, Shem? Um, we'll get into that. Keep going with the family. Okay, so yeah. he made it for specific reasons, and now he has his son Hal, who's a, a rising tennis player, has become a superstar. And then his uh, there's little Mario, who's a dwarf. Okay. And and then there's the the wife Avril, who is super tall and somewhat of a whore, and you know, everyone has their own things. This is you just cannot get into. Just give the characters their due in an hour podcast. Yeah. You just have to take the work with it. All these characters get developed. Very quirky. Quirky, different. Defined by their quirks, but they're like relatable and funny, humorous. Yeah, sure. Quirks. Yeah. yeah. And then there's uh, at the halfway house where the main character is Don Gately. Okay. He's now he went through his six months and now he's a counselor there okay or he's a manager there and he's uh there's him there, and then so i guess with the terrorists we have the tennis players we have the halfway house members and they all kind of have their own storylines and the way they interact and then eventually there's there's some uh they converge in different ways you're supposed to get the idea of how they converge and that's that's kind of like the story under this idea that there's this super lethal uh, entertainment, this, this disc. Okay. That is, uh, That's like... That's there. Yeah. So one thing that David Foster Wallace did not foresee in the appropriate way was the rise of the internet mm-hmm. and the way that, you know, YouTube and this, this non-material... But it, he did it metaphorically, Metaf- so a thousand percent. Meta- metaphorically, metaphorically. In the terms of, it doesn't matter whether you call it internet, whatever you call it. He call it, like, it was what just, we're doing is just amusing ourselves to death, like the right. Roger Waters album, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so in the in the book, the the entertainment is the physical disc, like the old VHS tapes, like an old DVD tape okay. that people are trying to get. There's a read only, apparently a read only copies, and there's a master copy. And which the master copy can be copied, and that's the, that's the copy they're trying to get. Okay. Now, does the the read only copy does that have the same effects? All of them have the same effects. All if you watch the video, effects. you are dead. Okay. Yeah. You are yeah. just you just sit there. And what does that mean? That really is. I think that's what he wants you to ask yourself. What am I saying here? Because as we said before, that bit, that plot stuff, you don't even have to really. That's not like a big part of the book. That plot. That's mm-hmm. something you take out. It's kind of interesting, but he's really asking you, "What am I saying with this?" 
that if you watch this one time, you're null and void, you know? And that yeah. you, this image of just people staring, like, you know, catatonic and pissing themselves, yeah. staring at a screen, yeah, you know, endlessly entertained. Yeah. Know, what does that mean? Which is why we started this podcast, talking about the ways that yeah. we have to entertain ourselves. You right now, the listener, are listening to this podcast. Why are you listening? Are you interested in literature, genuinely interested? Or is this just a podcast that just came up on your newsfeed? And, you know, what's next? Is it a music video? Is it a a phone call? Is it a... Uh, FaceTime. FaceTime. You know, what is yeah. it? Well, how, what, and the bigger question is, what are you hiding from in this entertainment, I think? Yeah, what are you getting? Is it helping? Is it improving your communication with other people, your own spirit? Or is it uh, breaking that down? Yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So if we, if we go back, like we go back in the day, the... Entertainment was rare. Like in the Greeks, they had their plays, there were stories, there was oral, and like it was it was a big deal to hear something or to go see something. Sure. And then we had radio, and that was a big deal. You could more of the world was made smaller. You could yeah. hear Babe Ruth hit a home run. You could you know get update live updates of the war. And this entertainment kept growing and growing. And then at what point did the balance tip to the point where it started taking away from our humanity? Right. And we started to become constructions. At what point did we become creations? That we self creations on Facebook in a profile, right, right. You know, and what point did this this balance tip? And I think this book starts to, you know, wants us to examine the that momentum, that rush, that wave, yeah, that has taken us from from one to the other. And is the momentum unstoppable? If it is, if it is stoppable, how do we stop it? Right. How do we rediscover ourselves away from our profiles and all that defines us? There's an article in the Atlantic. Mm -hmm. Recently, they talked about the ways that this new generation is growing up unhealthily, yeah, measurably absolutely. unhealthily, and yeah. cognitive mm -hmm. function impaired by the the from almost from day one. Like they're driving home and there's TV on and there's yeah pods and by age one they're doing they're staring at a screen and doing puzzles on the screen and all that stuff. This supposedly is made for like their education, but how is it taken away from their experience of nature? And like human interaction. Human interaction, exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, so um, what you think, uh, what other points does he come at? Like he seems to, I mean, it being such a big book, I would assume like he, he touches on a lot of different aspects of like that kind of lifestyle and like what what it directs you into. Like so like with the the movie that, that gets shown or the entertainment that gets shown, that completely like immobilizes what uh where does it where does it take certain characters or everything like that i guess without kind of giving things well, away but i i would say this it movie is a very small part of the book like mm -hmm. a big part of it like he, what he's saying is there's the tennis kids play sure, tennis, yeah mm -hmm. and there's the addiction the um halfway house. the halfway house yeah those are two centerpieces of really what happens in the book and really, it's about the experiences of the kids uh -huh. at the play, and then the experiences at the halfway house, which I love. I mean, he goes deeply into addiction, recovery, and then so much of, like, personally of, okay, somebody is just getting sober. What does it feel like to walk into an AA, an NA room for the first time to get assigned, you, you got court assigned to a halfway house. Yeah. That's a humbling and difficult experience. Take out all this nonsense we're talking about of, oh, the cultural shit. Just a personal, there's a lot of really great 
personal, relatable writing in this exactly. book. Exactly. Yeah. At the same time, that that the halfway house is, I assume, Foster Walls use that as a metaphor for what it would be like for us to recover from yeah, our, our addiction to enter, uh, addiction entertainment. Sure, yeah. I'm sure that can't have slipped his mind, and I'm sure that's been a well, well he, discussed. He knew it. He knew tennis stuff. And he he knew his addiction. He, he knew his, he knew his addiction, and the addictions serve as a, like a the drug addiction serves as a metaphor to the uh, entertainment addiction. Yeah, it's just another way of presenting. And even I think the athletic center, like the, it's it's athleticism, tennis, twenty four seven. Yeah, that's a way of another addiction. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. and there's there's you know certain paragraphs and long exposés that he goes on about how. You know, what? Who are we? Where do I lose myself in this? What does it mean to be me with a tennis player? What does it mean to be me with these drugs? Yeah, et cetera, et cetera. And that's that's just different ways of looking at the entertainment aspect. And he's making a correlation that these kids are give themselves so much over to playing tennis, and it goes through all the drills they mm-hmm. do and all the things they do, and then it almost shows how it's exactly how these kids are going could turn into addicts, yeah. giving yourself over to something. That takes over your life. Yeah. Where you don't have any yeah, responsibility, and it it makes that specific, uh, mm-hmm. like how at the the young kid in the family. Yeah. Uh, very much. I mean, he smokes a lot of pot. He, he's basically it's he's a pothead. He's a pothead, yeah. and it basically shows his next step probably is going to be the Ennett House, the halfway house. Yeah. And it's probably going to fit his personality because. And there is there is a scene where he goes to. He tries to go to a meeting. He goes down to the halfway house to get a list of the meetings. They give him a list. He picks one that's way out there. It doesn't actually end up turning to be a, a, a meeting for drug recovery. It's for someone's like inner child something. Oh. But it's uh, you know, he, there's an attempt for him to get there. And to go back to your point about the entertainment, yeah. there's, there's one scene close to the beginning where there's a, a medical attaché from Saudi Arabia, and we see what the viewing the entertainment is like through kind of through his eyes. Yeah. And so he gets home, he put pops it in, he's got his meal, and then he watches this entertainment and he becomes you know, incontinent and yeah. addicted immediately addicted to this this uh entertainment. Yeah. And then there's some his wife comes home eventually, she watches it. Uh-huh. She starts watching too, gets hooked, and there's about twenty people, police officers, people that go in and check on the police officers that didn't respond. They, they watch for one second. Watch one second, they're done. The fire, they come. Yeah. Oh, what's going on here? And they happen to oh, see yeah. the TV. And eventually, and someone someone hooked. someone oh. catches notice, and then they pull the power, and then they they figure that out. Yeah. And then it's it's all there's about probably 120 characters, all of which have some minor thing to do with the with the plot. Yeah. So now you got to talk. I'll introduce Madame Psychosis, which you should talk about. Mm-hmm. Joelle Vendine, which I'll just say that Madame Psychosis is her radio name. Okay. Uh, which I'll just say comes from, I'm pretty sure, James Joyce, because in Ulysses, um, Leo Bloom is talking to his wife about metempsychosis, uh-huh. is a word that means the transmigration of souls. And his wife is saying, What does that mean? And it's sort of a play on word, like, but I. It has to be a reference mm-hmm. to Ulysses. But so who is uh, so, Psychosis? So I think a lot of male writers in particular love to have a female character who is just insanely good looking. Yeah, yeah. And so, and especially, you know, David Foster Wallace and then uh, 
Jonathan Franzen, Foss Wallace's buddy, if you read his books, he's got yeah. gray looking broads who just, they describe in gray tones. And as males, young males, we sit there and read that and we just get like, oh, ha, 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 like, <laughs> yeah. even in the book. Yeah, I think yeah. that's a trick that mm-hmm. these guys know and probably talked about, like, as they were telling. Part of the entertainment. And right. entertainment, yeah, the yeah. story. So it's, it's definitely kind of a trick, but you know, it works. Yeah. And she's, uh, her name is Joelle Van Dyne. She's, uh, her, Radio name is Madame Psychosis, uh-huh. and uh, you know she—they call her the Pigo, the prettiest girl of all time—and she plays a, a role in the video. She's the the actress who got to know, how or James and Candenza, who was the guy who made the entertainment. Yeah, she stars in the in the entertainment. Entertainment is her naked, talking about with these special ways of shooting the the, the film that. James A. Condenza. Only through rumor it's described, like it's sort of late in the book. What the hell, you, you think, what the hell is possibly on this tape? Yeah. You know what I mean? And you know he's got to address it at some point. And, and he, do, he does address a little bit. Madame Joël Van Dyne is, in, is Dawn Steeply, the character we mentioned before. Sure, yeah. Interrogates Madame Psychosis Joël Van Dyne about the, the movie, and she gives what she can about the movie. She tells a little bit, talks a little bit about it, talks about some of the lenses he used. Yeah. And then, so, props to David Foster Wallace for not just saying it's Luther Entertaining, but actually for giving us an idea of what what was on the entertainment. So, in the entertainment, we have Joa Van Dyne Naked, prettiest uh-huh. girl of all time. Who, I picture her like um, Scarlett Johansson. That's how I picture We'll get that. She describes her in the book. Right? Isn't it? Is it basically, I, I mean, I'm sure that's my... So, maybe in the body. Maybe in the body. Modern but we'll get to that, because I think he used a, a model for that. Okay. But the, so... Uh, okay. She's naked, sitting on school, talking about how the person who kills you in this life will be your mother in your next life. And it's apparently very, you know, gets you thinking and you just keep watching this, this movie. By the way, Joel Van Dyne is described as having like peachy skin, freckles, and red frizzy hair, which is kind of a match, or somewhat similar to Mary Kerr, who was David Foster Wallace's fascination in real life mm-hmm. and then we if you read mary Kerr's her some of her memoir stuff we see how much she oh okay I you know she know. impacted apparently impacted david foster wallace's life and he was obsessed with her you know there's possibly some domestic violence involved in their relationship oh, okay, yeah. so he was kind of obsessed with her and he apparently told david foster wallace apparently told some friends that a lot of this book was meant to you know write to impress her and like to like hey like here's who like my power yeah of the same which you know like as a writer like the you can't put it past he got Foster caught Wallace. up in the entertainment yeah. Some, he, yeah like in the in the infinite jest he got caught in his own and this yeah. addiction you yeah. know, and, uh, so there's there's that story yeah everybody's susceptible she, to that but she is so because of the video and because she was in this video and because she apparently knows because she's the prettiest girl in the world she wears a veil mm-hmm. through the whole book but she didn't she didn't when she was younger she, uh, when she first met, she dates w- the one of James A. Condenza's sons. Okay. And she, uh, the son is kind of a, kind of a douche, pretty much a big dick. Yeah. He's a punter in the, in the NFL. He's a jock. Yeah. He's a jock. And then, uh, but, uh, eventually there may or may not have been an acid accident where her face got. Oh. But her thing is destroyed. she's at the halfway house and she has a veil. Yeah. So, like, there's all these characters at the halfway house. There's a midget. There's uh, Randy Lenz. We could talk about what Randy... But she's there, and everyone just... And there at the halfway house, it's like, oh, she's got a veil. Okay, she's yeah. got her issues, you know? Right, right. But meanwhile, her issue is, I think, she knows she's the prettiest girl in the world, 
and she knows maybe her beauty is part of this tape. Is that? Part of the, the interesting thing about Joy Van Damme, we can look at this. So she she puts the veil. There's there's supposedly an acid accident where she gets sprayed in the face by her. She is an addict too. She is an addict. She, she was is an a, addict. What a meth okay. addict or something? Meth addict. Yeah. So she got sprayed in the face by her her mother mm-hmm. at uh, her house in Kentucky. We're getting way off here. Hopefully the reader or our listeners are sticking with us. But then she's. So t- before she didn't wear the wear the veil because if she had been wearing the veil, the veil might have protected her from the acid. So then it's. If you think about it, it's only after that the acid might have destroyed her face that she started wearing the veil. Yeah. So she could not stand her ugliness at the same time that she was supposedly so beautiful. Yeah. But did she have the scar on her face? I, I've always taken this it is, that this, she's pretty and in with the communication thing, this veil is giving her an honest, more honest interaction yeah, with, with absolutely. guys. Because we're sitting around can, here. She's smart. I mean, she's, she's hip, but yeah. she was treated as the prettiest girl yeah. in the world. Yeah. Let's say let's say a beautiful girl walks through the door right now. Think about the three of us, how we, we would change, her, yeah, how yeah. we would change the way we we talk, the way we sit, the way we look, just to try and impress this beautiful girl. And she's aware of that. If she's aware of that. Everybody's aware of that. It definitely changes something. I think yeah. that's maybe what he was trying to trying to get at with that. Sure. Cool. Well, um, what's uh, what else does the uh, like? Any per, like super big points that he comes across like that's like like that we kind of haven't talked about yet in regards to where it comes. Well, to just you? to follow up on that point right there, like we're sitting here trying to figure it out. I think that's what he wanted. Yeah, Absolutely. he wanted us. He wanted like especially a twenty nine, thirty, thirty one year old male writer with his ego and with his. He once described himself as having the biggest ego of all time, mm-hmm. but also having no ego whatsoever. Like, and that's so. Like, I'd Which say he describes pretty much every, depression, or describes people that have those. That's and a lot of I think men in general. Like yeah, I can, guess. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We off yeah. this the spectrum of our ego. Yeah, yeah. Like, there's very little in between, like normalcy for a lot of men. Yeah, particularly mental health problems. And then there's like this extreme where you screw the world, and there's this low. But yeah. anyway, with the, with this book, like. A lot of it seems very deliberate, and mm-hmm. just, just the vagueness, and the, him wanting people to see it as a puzzle that you figure out. And he even stated many times that he he wanted people to read this book. He wrote this book for people to read more than once. Yeah. Eleven hundred page book that he, he wrote to for people to read more than once. That's that's ego. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's ego, and that's yeah. He pulls it off. I read it twice. Yeah, you know, a lot of writers want that. Sharon read it twice. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. not it's not unusual in the canon. Yeah, but still. It, it, says something. I don't think there's a lot of female writers that would write a book. Have that uh, chutzpah like, to yeah. say, oh, I'm going to take over your whole life. So let's have our yeah. listeners do an exercise here. If you're a reader, think of five great books by female writers and then five great books by male writers. Male writers are inevitably going to be more dense, more drawn out, more like the psychologicalness of the books that are, are played out. Women's are more sparse, more clean, just as psychologically insightful, but done in a, in a, in a uh, less drawn out way, yeah. And you can read a, a read a book by a female and get get through it and be like, okay, I understand this book and I, I read it. Yeah. And like you might read it for the beauty of it or for the voice, but the the with male authors a lot of times it's more stream of consciousness and you got to re- you reread it to figure out what happened. Yeah, and that's a tough criticism. That's not a criticism. I think he would have wanted. You know what I mean? Because he would have want. He wrote badly about. Was, he wrote a great essay about John Updike. 
Yeah. That just ripped him apart. Basically said, John Updike apparently wrote later in his life a book about a future, an alternate future, and there's, you know, what life is like. And it turns out it's just an old guy who's basically John Updike. And he lists, like, the number of pages describing the flowers around his house. Yeah. Describing this guy playing golf and, you know, having affairs (laughs) with the neighbor. And he's going, John Updike can't see out of himself. This is the problem with these sort of, what, these male patriarchal uh, writers of that era that he was sort of, uh, um, Roth, Philip Roth, does the same thing. You know what I mean? Maybe Norman Mailer does the Mm -hmm. same thing. These guys, like what you're talking about, the sort of the male consciousness that has to explain everything. Jonathan Franzen. Franzen, maybe. Well, he's part of the Wallace generation, but Wallace thought he was fighting against... I can't stand Norman Mailer. He has the book, you know, Advertisements for Myself. And, you know what I mean? It's like he's, he's doing what you said. Like he's putting his psychology out there. A little bit of a tough guy, a little bit of the Hemingway on through this is my tough guy life I'm a writer I'm fighting the, and I think <laughs> Wallace would not have wanted to be in that cycle but what you said puts him right there whether he wants to or not yeah I think know? Wallace is yeah. definitely a, a male writer while yeah. I agree Wallace wouldn't have wanted us to characterize him in that group that cohort of but it's a fair. Yeah, it's, it's a, a fair it's a very fair. Yeah, I mean, look at this yeah. book. Anybody who publishes this kind of book, eleven hundred <laughs> pages with two hundred pages of footnotes. Holy shit! Like that's that's an that's an ego. Like well, an, that's another thing. The footnotes are out of control, and the footnotes, like what you see, he, I, I think he used footnotes like in almost all his writings. Like you used to see that on Grantland. That's yeah, like, Grantland and stuff. I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure they took that from Wallace. You're probably right, yeah. I'm pretty sure that he, in all his essays, he has footnotes. It was just his shtick. And yeah. it was kind of funny. And I said, I'll tell you what, Bill Simmons has a huge fucking ego. The guy that does Grantland, or really? did Grantland, yeah. on now he does the right well, so, Hey, let's just be honest. All, like, most normal men... Yeah. Have huge oh, that's yeah, true. Yeah, yeah. Let's, yeah. We can just put that. You out. either yeah. want to conquer the world, or yeah, or you write something and claim it's great. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. But hey, but at the same time, we're hating on David Foster Wallace. You know, I think there are fair <laughs> criticisms, know. but at the same time, like this book itself has inspired a lot of people. This book, it, like, it, it, you know, as an aspiring writer myself, some of the you know my most inspirational stuff has come from reading this this book in particular. Yeah. It's the book of its generation, where we are. That's why I think it's interesting. I really mm-hmm. think it is where we are right now. That you know, you go read Moby Dick, or you read Shakespeare, or you read Pride and Prejudice, which were great books of their generations. Right. This is speaking to where we are right mm-hmm. now. Still is. Still, yeah. And who knows? A hundred years from now, I don't see why this isn't like Moby Dick status. Well, like right? Ulysses status, maybe. Ulysses is beyond. Ulysses is beyond, but it's it, it, the, the thickness, the thickness and the length. The thickness and the length. It'll, it, I think, it'll grow in legacy as it as it oh, goes Oh no, on, absolutely, I think, absolutely. I think. And he was trying to do a Ulysses. Yeah, and that's why I think the um, I, I admire that. I mean, as much as you, I love big books that try to just. I think it's impressive. Shoot man. The world. Like I, I agree. Yeah, I agree. You know? We need we need this kind of experimentation. As a, we can't just have this trimmed down prose, no. like anti, like think of your classic Facebook profile. We don't need Facebook profile books. We no, need right. real people, real books, yeah, which yeah. I think we, we get from him, get from him. Yeah. yeah. The uh, other thing I'll say is, in terms of his legacy, it will depend on whether it's a, a male created legacy or whether it's a a more 
both female and males creating the legacy. So if we look at Ulysses in the books of the path, these thick tombs, like if, if females had a, more of a voice in the way literature was reviewed in the past, Ulysses would not be the book it is today. I'm, you know, you know, I don't know. so listen, to the, let that. me finish my point. Okay, so females, point and then I'll, so if, uh, if females had a, a more of a say, they would, Ulysses would not be in the, held in the reverence as a, it would be, it could be a great book, but it would just, it would, it would be within this subset of guys like Shem who, who appreciate it and can, can live through it. So in the future, let's say 30 years from now, maybe the men don't have the same, uh, cachet, the, the same, uh, Monopoly on what's good and what's not, like they had in the past, and like starting to shift now. Right. And so, will this book be be revered the way it is? I don't know. If you look at all the reviews of Infinite Jest, the women are more critical mm-hmm. for the reasons we mentioned, and the men are more reverent. The men want to be like David Foster Wallace. Mm. The yeah, women women can fair. can look and yeah. say, "Hey, I don't have this male ego. I don't need to pretend to love it because I don't understand it." You know, right. You know right. I mean? Yeah. So. That's how do, fair, how do we yeah. go, go from there? If you talk to women now, women readers, some of them, the best ones will say, okay, I read it, got through it, I'm not going to read it again. Yeah. It's, it's the men, <laughs> it's the men that want to... It's like, it is like Moby Dick, we have, we're fighting that whale, we want yeah, that whale. Yeah. <laughs> we yeah. want to find it's that the whale. Men, it's the women men that aren't, read aren't, this twice. Uh, Ahab, with the, they don't have to prove, they don't have to go find the whale. No, they don't. Right, yeah. 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 Women, women, women don't read Infinite Jest twice. Find me a find me a woman who's read Infinite Jest twice. Oh, there are, but I mean, I'm I, sure your point are. your point. Who hasn't? Works. Who did? Who did it on their own? Who's been doing a writing group or something? There's not many even even there. Women women say, if you ask a woman, what do you like? A, do you like David Foster Wallace? Say, uh, I'm more of a fan of his nonfiction. That's what they'll say. Mm, mm. And the men, you might get some nonfiction, or you, but often you say, yeah, it's it's great, man, I love it. Yeah, which is what we're kind of sitting here doing. Well, and the, if you think about it too, like you look at all these universes that get created in other books like humongous you know things that like nerds or whoever can dive into it's like it's all a lot of dudes doing that (laughs) it's a lot of dudes going in like knowing all the ins and outs of lord of the rings or knowing all the ins and outs of like the star wars universe that gets all expanded in the the marvel universe wherever it may be like it's it definitely applies more to men in a lot of those ways i mean sure there's women that are interested in it but it's like predominantly men like that do that kind of thing except back to ulysses for just a second insult the Quran <laughs> you're going to get retaliation okay no no I I, I mean uh, I get the point I will say Ulysses ends with the big ending of Penelope is his wife Molly Bloom mm-hmm. written from her perspective just run on sentences I don't know how many uh, thousands and thousands of words but it's uh, basically she gets the final say in that book and in some ways, that book is a tribute to his wife, because it's set on the date that they met. Well, it's like all men, when they die, they call for their mothers. So yeah. Ulysses sold his soul, it not sold his soul, but he is. put his soul in that book, and at the end, with Penelope, he's calling out to his mother. Absolutely, that's fair. Yeah. He's calling out, it all, it all comes back to, yeah. we all come back to our mothers, in some okay. way or another, when we, when, when we give ourselves away. I just had to defend the Quran. Uh, hey, you got to do what Whatever you got to do. This is, uh, <laughs> no, it's a, that's a fair point, though. Um, now, if somebody, like, say me, was like, okay, I'm intrigued to read Infinite Jest, like, what, how do I get myself prepared to do, do I do You definitely, something? you definitely, good, if you're only going to read it once, you definitely should read a summary uh-huh. of it before you read it. 
Shun the Pen here, wrote me a little summary before I read it. Yeah. I read it, and it made my reading experience that much more enjoyable, and un- I was able to understand the book that much better. Even the first time around. There's not really a plot, like, with suspense, and so you don't lose much. And uh-huh. if you read the first 15, 16 pages carefully anyway, you kind of figure out what happens as, yeah. as you go along. Well, I would say this real fast. You start reading it in the first couple... I think you sort of tell how he was writing it, too. There's a scene... There's a couple of scenes where it sort of moves... Um, I won't spoil what it is. Yeah. Well, you, actually, he could probably spoil the first scene and talk about what's going on because it's kind of interesting. Yeah. It doesn't get till there's a part where it's like a stream of consciousness, this guy, Ken Erdetti, who is one of the guys who you'll end up seeing in the halfway house, who is a hardcore... Uh, pothead. Yeah. And it is an in-depth, run-on sentences on and on of all his things of how he smokes weed. Yeah. And how every time he smokes, he decides he's never going to do it again. <laughs> so he has to go to different dealers to get a new bong every time. He goes to the store and gets his ice cream. Yeah. He goes and gets everything set up. He gets his videos. And the lady is not showing up that's bringing him this weed and it's like life and death and he's going should I call her but then what if she gets a busy signal and she's trying to call yeah. Yeah. and it is the in exact how an addict thinks and he, then he finally says I'm just going to smoke so much this time that it's going to be it's, I'm going to hate it I'm going to turn myself against it like this Yeah. and it goes so and like as you're reading it you're going what does this have to do with any story and that's what Infinite Jest really is. It's these in-depth characters mm-hmm. going right to all the shit you don't want to talk about. It's not like, oh, here's a guy who's a pot ahead and yeah. he's got a black light in his room. No, this is really the shit that he would not. He would never admit this to anybody. Yeah, the shit he, Ken or Daddy is talking mm-hmm. about in that. Yeah, right? the inner and voice. That's about what like twelve pages in. That's when it, I said, okay, I'm going to stick with this book. Yeah, you know? yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for me, it was just, I think I, it was a, uh, like, an ego thing wanting to get through it. And so, like, the first, you know, I don't know how many pages. But I was like, man, this is, I don't know if I can take this, this vocabulary, like, the density. That wasn't as good a reader back then when I first first read it. But then, you know, ego pulled me through as a man. I said, okay, I want to I want to say I read this book. And by the time I was about maybe 100 pages in, I was like, okay, I get the rhythm, I get the flow, I get it. So, there's a uh, Rilke has a quote where he talks about the infinite distances between people. Uh-huh. And, you know, like, like once you understand that there's an infinite amount of distance between people, there's, uh, you know, like, you can enjoy life that much better. So I think what David Foster Wallace was doing with these characters is trying to close that infinite distance between between me and you, between the reader and so on. Yeah. Like, by getting as deep as he could into these, these into psyches. These into these, these psyches. Yeah. yeah. But, you know... What's the, is that the quote? What's the quote you were going to say? The infinite, infinite uh, distances. I don't, I don't yeah. remember the quote. No, it's interesting. It's uh, like the. So I think he's the, maybe it's what every writer wants to do. Yeah. Is close the infinite distance between me and you. Stephen King talks about writing as telepathy. Yeah. You know, like, I have a thought. I write it down. You read my thought. You get it up. You get. You get my you picture. A table. Picture a table. Picture a red table. And now you just pictured it. That's yep, telepathy. Yep. Now the yeah. listener is pis- uh, picturing a red table. Yeah, yeah. Telepathy. So that's how we get it. We like we can't screw somebody so hard because the phallic phallus woman goes so far into the chalice. But you know we can. Like, that's pen- how Johnson said that. We can, <laughs> we can penetrate someone mentally. 
and that's yeah. that's like where that real bond is going. So I think what he's trying to do is just, you know, not rape us, but in a way, you know, just screw us so hard that we we with these characters that we get into that. We yeah. we just become these the mindset of these characters. Yeah. And I know that's not unique to David Foster Wallace and we're riffing here on on writing in general. Yeah. But just that that idea is more present as we're as we're talking about it. So it's intimate writing. It's intimate. Go, it's go intimate. ahead. Well, well the, for the characters, like it's broken. Like, is that how the chapters are broken up? Are the, is it chapters? No chapters. Or is it, the chapters is apparently in some. It was written in some sort of shape. There's definitely like there's sections to the book. Okay. And like the, there's some are like half page, some are hundred pages. But there's uh, it was written in the shape of some geometric shape. So like every character gets this triangle in the shape. Do a Google search here if you got your computer ready and check out how he wrote it. That's how that's how he wrote it. The, there are a couple qualms I have with uh, with it. Some of the you know, David Foster Wallace, if Shem correct me on this, was a postmodern era writer. Yeah, and postmodern post people post-modern. love to like call themselves out. They love to to critique themselves within their own writing as the writing is happening. Meta, the, meta, yeah, yeah, meta. So there's definitely a lot of this in here there's uh david foster wallace knows what the the anticipates what the reader might be thinking and he will humorize different sections or he will have a kind of like a comic relief character who's following along in the same scene what a scene is supposed to be sincere but mm-hmm. that that character is is providing the cynicism of that it. was uh yeah. Resplendent. Is that what you were were saying? That too, like, and it's sort of like how communication works. Somebody, a character is bearing their soul, and then another character is. Yeah. So we can can look at uh, another conversation here, but let's just talk about how that might play out now. So I say, Dom, I love you. Mm -hmm. I love you too. Yeah. So, like, there's this. There we go. There's there's, (laughs) there's a. uh, But, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here, I, I tell somebody I, I love them. Uh-huh. You know, let's say before, in, like, old literature, that's that's just there. And, like, it's it's sincere, and it's unaccompanied by any sort of, uh, you know, addendum. And yeah. That, was that the right word? Yeah, addendum. yeah. Addendum. Yeah. So, but, but if you if you look at, you know, particularly this new comic wave, uh, who wrote the 40-year-old version? Uh, Judd Apatow. Oh, Judd Apatow. Right, right. So, it's been Judd yeah, Apatow, yeah. you got... The, like stuff in the 90s and you look Simpsons. at Simpsons like how they say I love you it'd be like I love you oh but it's okay if you don't love me like it's uh, you know but like this much and like it's it's turned into this jokey kind of thing yeah, where yeah. like maybe the message is there but maybe it's not there we've, we've lost is it a generation you think that's a generational I don't know thing? I don't know degree, but if you, a... if you look at literature back in the day you you get yeah, some yeah. sort of self-conscious like awareness of it but not to the the, the hokey degree that we get in now yeah, and so like David Foster Wallace writing the '90s must have recognized that, and he must have said, "Okay, like I can't have all the sincere stuff." Maybe he wasn't comfortable with that himself. Too. Exactly, like maybe he he wasn't afraid to be, you know, to just lay something out there without these uh, amendments, like in about these like ways of letting you know that he you might think he was being cheesy, 
And so he's he's not going to let you think he's going to be cheesy about letting you know that he knows that you might think or, you're yeah, being cheesy. Yeah. Is that even cheesy? Why do we even? You're so yeah. like, why is that word even in the conversation cheesy? Why can't you just be sincere? Yeah, that's so that's that, and that's a '90s. That's why this is a book of its time of the '90s, and that's 96. still more prevalent today. Yeah, I mean, and then so is it a generational thing that now it's like you've got to be sarcastic and ironic, yep. and you got to admit you got as long as you get a good line in on something that goes from the president on down. <laughs> you get a funny line in yep. or you get a good burn on somebody and on yeah. characters yeah that's, you're good you're good you're okay so if you say i love you through an emoji you're good but, <laughs> yeah i like guess yeah. it's a little bit better but at the same time now like there are these new tv shows that are coming out that are sincere it's a return to sin- sincerity yeah. and i'm just going to look here in the book we have this one conversation between this uh catherine gompart kate gompart who is a, a pothead and she's an alcoholic, perhaps, and she's meeting with, happens to meet Remy Marath, who was the agent for the wheelchair assassins. They're in a bar. And Marath is telling her how he met his wife. And his wife is fully incapacitated. She's a paraplegic. She's a, uh, you know, she's just got all sorts of problems. She's basically a, has no limbs, is in a permanent coma. And part of the reason Marath might be double agent is because he wants to get that wife extend her life five years, even though she's already brain dead in a coma in the States. So he's telling her about this. And here are some of the lines that uh, Kate Gumpert says as, as Marath is telling this. So she says, quote, and you think, oh, fuck me, just great. Another horrible thing I'm going to have to stand here and witness and then go feel pain over it. And then Marath keeps telling it. And Marath's Marath's bit are really sincere. And this is very possibly sincere. And then, Kate says again, hang me upside down and fuck me in both ears. You pulled yourself out of a clinical pressure by being a freaking hero. So that's kind of like this sideways cynicism to this one character trying to be very sincere in the book. And it's only, it's only towards the end of the book, only towards the end of the book, where we get some sincere exchanges. How, uh. But real fast with her. Well, in the same point, if you get in her earlier, like when she's in um, the mental asylum, right. she her inner voice is sincere. She knows the drug. The drug addicts are sincere. But like Kate Gompert is one. No, but I'm saying in conversation, she's got to have that sort of like attitude. Oh God, here we go again. I'm not listening to. But in her mind, and the book gets into her mind, she is sincere. So there's a disconnect of can she express? But isn't isn't, isn't that the way we all are anyway? Yeah, and yeah. I mean, it's so rare. like even it's people great. who it's are cynical point. like have to be in some They're way sincere about their, their cyn- own, cynicism in their yeah. own. But but maybe they, she is she is sincere about a lot of stuff she cares yeah. about. But she can't express that exactly. Well, that's that's cynicism still. Like that's why yeah. we're, we're we're cynicism. It's a defense mechanism for our lack of of vulnerability and sincerity. Yeah, yeah. That's a very good point. It's really good. But the book and the book shows you Kate Gompert is not just shows you yeah. she's got. Uh, and then only only towards the end do we get a com- there's a couple conversations where we get uh, Gay Lee and, and the Wraith mm-hmm. talk very sincerely. Well, now who's the Wraith? So the Wraith, the Wraith, since you know, I think you can it's, ruin it because I think you yeah. want people. So to Wraith, ruin Wraith, it. Wraith no is the uh, James A. Condenza who killed himself. The guy who made the video, uh-huh. and he comes back as a Wraith to try to get his son. The, the the tape and the tape was originally made to try to get his son uh, Hal, who's p- perhaps the main character along with Gate Don Gailey, yeah, out of this robotic state that the son was in because the son ate mold when he was younger. And as you can see, me just trying to explain that is a. Uh, 
But it's more of a metaphor. It's saying like the son was not communicative, like how we're saying. You know, he's like a typical '90s kid. Yeah. And the father made this movie to say, "I want to try to fix him and get him out to the world." Well, son also ate this mold to make him a robot. Uh, is that it? That's is that it? it? That's yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see. I, and I didn't get. I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure that's part of it. But I think it's. It's the mold. It he is? eats his, his crappy mold when he was young and turns him into a... I remember that scene. This robotic, he's, he can think and he can... I'm, I ate this and... Yeah. Yeah. He can think and he can he can express himself, but he cannot feel. Oh. So he's got this incredible vocabulary. Yeah. And he writes essays. Writes like, essays like you would not believe. Yeah. Like he's yeah. fascinated with Byzantine porn, but he just, yeah. he just doesn't feel yeah. things. So huh. by the father made this movie to try to get him to feel, feel but by similar. doing it, Look what he did. He not only screwed the sun up, he basically ruined the world. Yeah. Almost. He almost brought a world war. Yeah, I don't know like, what that's and like the, it, we, We're unclear exactly how far the entertainment has been disseminated into popular culture. But the president and his group of staff, they make these videos for kids to try to uh, warn the kids to not watch unlabeled videos, etc., etc. Yeah. If you're a terrorist in this book, all you got to do is send the video... Yeah. Maybe you put a different label on it. If yeah. I'm a terrorist, I'll just go. You kids know, video. Send kids, it to the kids. Kids videos. Yeah. You're yeah. gonna now kill, literally kill Jeez. kids by using this. Yeah. Now, I, you don't have to answer this because it might be like I don't know if it spoils anything or not. But if you mentioned the point where they unplug the video, does that stop people from being no? Come no, they're no, done. They are you done. Watch it for one second, and you're it's done. like you're right. In it. One five. I don't know what the yeah, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, You see it, and you you see some part of it, and you're not yeah. avoid. There's huh. some there's some pretty hilarious scenes, sickeningly hilarious scenes. Yeah. Where some of these terrorists have got a, a read only copy of the video, and they're pulling off these people from the streets to be participating in this experiment of what it's like. Yeah. To watch the video, so will will they cut off one of their own fingers to watch this video? Will they cut off the fingers of other people to watch the video? And then some of the people they pull off the streets are some of the people in the halfway house. And that's kind of the way we get these parallels and like oh. overlapping narratives. Yeah. So it's not just, you know, these terrorists meet, meet the half-assed people. The half-assed people eventually meet some of the terrorists and the, some of the Don Gailey ends, ends up meeting Howling and Candenza. And it's just these paralleling ways one other thing about the humor of the book Don Gately when he was an addict he was a uh, burglar and he had a beef with the DA or something who gave him trouble so he burgled a house one time uh-huh. and pretended to like get almost like leave midway and so the people came home the DA yeah. right, and they say oh okay apparently nothing's missing it's okay but they buried a picture in one of the drawers where they put two, the guy's toothbrushes and the wife's toothbrushes up their ass <laughs> and took a picture of it. And so two, for those two months, they've been brushing Brush their teeth. Oh. And that was the whole story of it. And that actually comes back at the end, yeah. right? It's funny. It's yeah. a funny book. Yeah. It's a, the, we we, we uh, try to theorize about it and all this shit. It's a, it's a funny book, and it's that 90s... Simpsons humor. Yeah, it's right. it's at the same time. David Foster Wallace humor. didn't. He didn't like. He either said he didn't like that it was funny, or he said it didn't mean for it to be funny. Which I think to him, he knew some of these parts no, were all funny. All this stuff is some humor. In some it. humor, yeah. and he's playing dumb in these interviews where he's talking about like, yeah. oh, I didn't know it'd be funny. Like you don't know like a scene where no, like I, someone sticks a toothbrush up your ass and there's a picture yeah, of that. Clever. It's that's clever. That's clever and that's funny. <laughs> yeah, and there's yeah. other parts that are that are uh, 
funny as well, which someone as aware as David Foster Wells can't not know. Yeah. That it's, oh, yeah. That it's going to be funny. But he, like, you know, he plays to his, his audience and mm-hmm. he'll play in the, to the interview and to the NPR hosts that are going to, yeah, like, you know, whatever. And, you know, that's, He's not going to mention the toothbrush thing on NPR. Authors, authors know, good authors know what they tell the, inter- the interviewers. What oh, the yeah. interviewer wants. And to these do. guys read their books so, so many times. They go through it so many times. They have feedback from people a lot smarter than, you know, you know, the, the average reader, yeah, I right. think. Yeah. Especially David Foster Wallace. And so, like, they're going to say, oh, this is funny. Like, what's funny about it? This is funny about it. So it's not like it's the first time you heard it is on this interview with, you know, the New Yorker. It's, right, you know, right. So yeah. There's that. Okay. What, uh, now, do you want to talk about himself, like, David Foster Wallace himself again? Like, what happened to him? Like, where he went to? Or is there stuff more about the book that you want to touch upon in regards to... Well, I think with the book, we can t- we can maybe finish with the, some the book stuff. With, with he, David Foster Wallace obviously killed himself. Mm-hmm. I think it's a, not a fact. There's a, uh, he's become kind of this legendary cult figure for a lot of how long years. ago? Well, it's 2008. Two thousand eight. It's interesting. The next book he was trying to write was going to be about the IRS, mm-hmm. and he went and did IRS research and all that. And the theme of that book, if he had finished it, was going to be about fighting through tedium and how so much of life is dull. Yeah. And he's literally boring the reader, purposely boring the reader with all this IRS stuff. Yeah. And the other interesting thing is, apparently, the IRS, somebody within the IRS was bringing all these different characters with slightly weird powers. So, like, one guy could levitate a little bit. (laughs) Yeah. One guy could read minds. And he had some idea he was going there with this yeah and he's in it too like he'll say there's bits where he'll be like i'm david foster wallace this is the author this is my social security number <laughs> i just want to tell you what i'm doing and it's that's bullshit too yeah yeah he was try- it's the same as infinite jest he was trying a lot of different things experimenting not yeah you gotta appreciate that no absolutely and, and there's some sections that are so well written there's a one conversation in there that's i think the best thing he's ever written better than if it, with um Madeline Rath, and she's like a Joel Vendine kind of person. And they just have a heart-to-heart conversation that's what he does best. And then there's a conversation where there's people trapped in an elevator. They're talking about um, civics and uh, like what it means to be an American, a citizen, and all this shit. And it's smart conversation, mm-hmm. and he did that very well. But he was trying so many other things... And uh, he, it, it is unfinished. The book is not finished. It was published as would that have, would that have been a masterpiece, or did he miss? I don't his, think so. Or did he miss know. his chance at but the masterpiece but the with whole Infinite? Thing is, what does it matter? You write a masterpiece or not? Yeah. You know what I mean? What is a man? Who gives a shit about a masterpiece? <laughs> it's a great book. It is a good book. And the next one would have been good, but again, electrocuted by his own talent, putting so much importance on. on maybe writing a masterpiece or maybe or or all these ideas he had he was such an idea guy he yeah. was but the reason they'd say why he killed himself is because he was switching medications so he'd been on yeah. one medication for so long so many years uh-huh. and then this antidepressant and he switched it and then like weaning yourself off antidepressants is challenging yeah and so just trying different ones and then eventually he was just, an addict he was he, an addict himself just as an addict that was I think it was unconfirmed if he was an addict, but it was, I, I, I think definitely. Assume, he wrote that thing for that. Um, he never. I mean, he never. 
He never claimed to. Claimed. Uh, there's yes. way. This is way too. Per- I think he, he did a lot of research. He did. Yeah. Attic. I think so. I'm, I'm. I'm speculating, and maybe that's not fair yeah. to do. But I think he he had the addict uh, bit of the spirit. And, yeah. So there's. But your... that makes the antidepressant stuff so much yeah. harder. Yeah. Because yeah. you think of it as uh, we were talking about that. That like I know if I got assigned antidepressants, I'd probably say. I'm going to just save like five of these and I'll eat five at once and deal with the days without them and that's not healthy. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and no matter how I took them, it would not be healthy as an addict. Yeah. And antidepressants, like they kind of don't work like that either. Like you I know, but uh, in my yeah. mind, that's how I'd yeah. want, I'd try to make them work. Right. You know? <laughs> and so they wouldn't work for me. With the first of he had taken antidepressants successfully for, for many, many years. Yeah. yeah. And then he had married this, this other woman who again, redhead, yeah, you know, I forget her name, but she was a, uh, you know, he was married and so on. Like had some measure of stability. Apparently, had his really, dogs. Like, he loved his had dogs. Had his dogs. Yeah, yeah. Dogs. <laughs> dogs. Had his dogs. But then uh, Jonathan Franzen wrote a kind of a, like a nice essay where they, they kind of articulated the anger that people felt at David Foster Wallace for killing himself, hanging himself yeah. in his garage, where he knew that he'd be found by. You know, people that love them. Yeah, like the, yeah. The, mm-hmm. the hurt that could have caused. So he was, in a way, still crying out for tension in some way. And right, yeah. Like even through that, that pain. Even through that I stuff. remember I was taking a nonfiction class at Kent State when it happened. And I had to raise my hand and say, can we just uh, acknowledge what happened today? <laughs> I mean, we are kind of taking a... Well, this is supposed to be a yeah. English class. The lady was cool, too. She said, thank you so... You know, and we, we spent the rest of the class talking about him. Wow. Yeah. But, you know, that was... It was nuts. Big deal, man. Yeah. But isn't that interesting? Like Hemingway and Hunter Thompson and maybe to some degree William Faulkner, all these guys that end up male writers male that writers. try to yep. take over the yep. world, realize they can't do it. <laughs> That's about the cycle. Style, yeah. And then they kill themselves because they put so much importance on, on their, what they're writing. Or they're what this they're... masculine, like what you're talking about, this idea they have to get the whale and the whale gets away <laughs> and they feel like, what else can I do? So now they're, then they're going to leave the mess for somebody else to clean up. Mm-hmm. Jeez, this craziness! It is craziness. Yeah. So maybe we can wrap up by talking about like ways to read the book. Yeah. Ways to yeah. Like, how to go into it. So the first thing I'll say is, you know, unless you're the greatest reader of all time, mm-hmm. in which there would be only one person, that person's probably already read the book. So unless you're the greatest reader of time, like have an idea of what the book is about before you get started. Yeah. And then the uh, second thing is I'll say this prob for for. Like people like myself and like the other average readers, like it's probably not a book that you can read like on the beach or on the subway or on or, or you know any other like, sort of. You kind of need to set time. You got to set time it. like at, in a quiet place, yeah. With like not just ten, fifteen minutes before you know it's time going to go to bed or something, or something like, like yeah, that. So, even. Yeah, yeah. And find a, find a good hour, make it a reading experience, kind of yeah. like you would read you know other other great works, right? Now, okay, so you guys filled me in on it. Would I be able to say, like, oh, could I borrow your copy of Infinite and then go and read it at this point? Don't be afraid to skip, too, I would say. Yeah. If there's, uh, it's a kind of thing where you, you don't, well, like, like, exactly what you're saying, like, as you don't have to, like, conquer, you don't have to prove anything to anybody by reading it, like, conquer yeah. it. Mm-hmm. You can look at a, um, uh, summary and uh-huh. say, okay, if you're not digging apart, this is what this is. There's summaries that go page by page what's happening. Right. And just find your way in. Like I said, like that little bit 
about the guy who's uh, pothead. Pot yeah. That got me, and I love that. And that got me into the rhythm of the writing. So did you jump around when you read it? When the first time I read it, I jumped around. There was tons of shit that I did not get, the whole bit about the wraith, and a lot of this shit about the entertainment. I... This was I first tried to read it years ago and it it I couldn't. A do lot it. of the clues, a lot of the clues. Years ago that I finished it, yeah. A lot of the clues about the entertainment are hidden in like single lines, yeah, and almost and almost throwaway paragraphs, yeah. Which uh, you know, thank for the internet, yeah. Which is like it's, Ulysses too. That the whole story of Ulysses is the wife is cheating on um, Leo Bloom, the husband, with a singer in town. And you don't even know that because it's in his head. And, like, there's bits where he'll, he's just walking along and he goes, uh-oh, I got to cross the street. Because he doesn't even want to see, he sees that guy and he doesn't even want to think about it. Uh, but how are you supposed to know that? Yeah, Because yeah. it's in his head. You yeah. Know? So, yeah. yeah. You, now, okay, to follow that up, do you think, like, was David Foster Wallace, was his, one of his influences would be, like, a James Joyce? Or would you think... David uh, Foster Wallace was, he claims Don DeLillo. Okay. But I think we can easily look to... Uh, Pynchon. Yeah. Like, Gravity's Rainbow was the original Infinite Jest. Okay. Like, the amount of of characters, the the vocabulary, just, like, these obscure words. Yeah. Like, deliberately put in there, you know it's going to make the sentence sound non-literary, but you you just throw all the stuff in there. The density, the plots, you know, twists and so on. Yeah. What do you sort think? of sign alternate uh, reality of like the bombs and stuff. The guy that can predict the bombs, yeah. yeah but it know. doesn't get into the human. I don't see Pynchon writing pages and pages about the pothead mm. guy that I can relate to, or the woman, you know, uh, it, or anything that you can really. That's the thing. The reading it is look for something you can relate to. Sure. And I guarantee, if you can relate to something, it's going to go heavy, heavy into that for pages and pages. Yeah. And that's your way into the book. Interesting. You know? And yeah. it's okay to skip and you know whatever you can get out of it, get out of it. But it's worth even times that are challenging. It's worth fighting through. I think so too. Yeah. If oh. you only read a hundred pages, you can probably get a good either book, and you can get filled in on the rest. Yeah. But I don't think I don't think if you read it. The whole thing, you would regret. Yeah, if, yeah, if you devoted way. yourself That's to true. it. That's true. Yeah, if you yeah, just yeah. like stared at the pages, it'd be tough. Yeah, but I can go back to Pinchon. I can see David Foster Wallace, you know, finishing reading Gravity's Rainbow, putting it down, and whether it's consciously or subconsciously, thinking, "Well, I can, I can, you know, I'm smart enough to do better." Yeah, you know, like, I can, yeah. I can take this another step. Yeah, yeah, and just going, going from there. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Cool, well, yeah. Hey, That's all I got. You guys got me intrigued, dude. That's for sure. <laughs> That's all I got. Hopefully we just sold some books for right. DDFW. Right. Uh, R.I.P. Did you guys want to plug anything? Shem? How about, uh, well, I'll just, I'll, I just have my uh, Twitter. Twitter. I drop the mic haiku. Haikus yeah. every day. New haikus for you. Premium content. And also ShemThePen.com. Uh, Keep a look for his stuff, too, on KeystoneStatement.com. He does the album reviews. Uh, they're really good. Um, he also does some, uh, funny columns here once in a while, too, but, yeah, definitely check out the album reviews, too. I love those shit, man. (laughs) Next one, uh, yeah, we'll get some new ones. The next one might be Tommy and, uh, I don't know, be a surprise. We got a few lined up. Yeah. I'll be A.O., that's awesome. How about, uh, Dr. Uncle Fresh? Oh, oh, I know something you gotta promote. Tell me, Shem. Uncle Fresh uh, just released a rap album about a month ago. This yeah. guy is also a rapper. He's a, That's right. He can tell you about his basketball uh, knowledge and experience, but he's a rapper. 
last month just put out an album called Uncertainty Principles. Uncertainty Principles, produced by this guy right here, Shun the Pen. We're hyping each other up. Check out the album. Only one song. I always told myself I made now that I would never rap the way yeah. I hear rappers do. But once you get in that studio and you're holding that mic, it's hard not to do <laughs> It's hard not to do that. It's hard not all to right, do it. Right, so, right, but I promise, I only got one song, maybe two songs, in which I, you know, dive into that rapper ego. But other than that, I want to say they're thoughtful lyrics. And it's, yep. it's uh, obviously well produced, well sampled. We got Mazzy Star samples. We got Beach Boy samples. Nice. Who else? We like got Dylan, psychedelic French Pink pop, Floyd. yep, yep. Samples, uh, Serge uh, Gainsbourg, yeah. It's I think if you like atmosphere, if people know that some indie rock. If you know like indie rap, thoughtful indie rap, you're gonna dig it. And it's on. Uh, it's available on um, Audio, Audio Mac. Mac on certainty principles. On Fred, New York Times reviewed it last week. They said it was. They gave me three out of four stars. That's pretty good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, they didn't. Roll. But you know, like. If we get no, let's go with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll be promoting that on the blog. Rolling, Rolling Stone gave me three and a half stars. Yeah. Rolling Stone. They're, they're a bunch of assholes anyway. Yeah, 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 people yeah. read Rolling Stone, people look at the, the stars. Yeah. Pitch for it. Kind of what thing. are the other ones? Um, Consequences and Sound. Across the Margin gave me four out of four stars. Appreciate yeah, that. There you go. <laughs> hey, the streets love it. We yeah. only care. It's made for the streets. It's not made for some, uh, you know, yeah, schmuck. It's made for, it's made for uh, thoughtful people. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. like Infinite Jazz. It's right. not going to be read by a three-year-old. Yeah. Right. On certain principles, it's not going to be listened to by a five-year-old. Right, know? right. Yeah. Yeah. Take it. Yeah. Audio Mac, A-U-D-I-O-M-A-C-K. Look up Uncle Fresh Uncertainty Principles. Rock and roll. your life. It's free. There you go. Awesome. It's been, um, it's been uh, pop my cherry here today on the Here Comes Everybody. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I'm Ian. <laughs> we got Shem the Pen. This is Dominic D'Angelo. Follow me on Twitter at Dominic D'Angelo. Follow the Keystone Statement at Keystone STMT. Uh, we're on Instagram, Keystone Statement, Facebook. Uh, and then, yeah, just look at the blog, KeystoneStatement.com. And uh, that's about it. We'll uh, talk to you next time.